The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. On this week's episode, we are joined by Dev Jane. Dev Jane is the CEO and founder of Rail Vision Analytics, a startup developing in cab technology for passenger and freight trains. Rail Vision's EcoRail app directly reduces fuel consumption and GHG emissions through improved train handling. Under Jane's leadership, EcoRail has garnished industry recognition and attracted major players like ViaRail, Metrolinx, and Genesee in Wyoming, delivering impressive fuel savings of up to 15%. Jane's accolades include grants from Montreal Incorporated, Centec, and Dobson Cup, along with a Green Innovation Award from Cycle Monumentum, showcasing his commitment to innovation and sustainability. Now let's get into this week's episode with Dev. Well, John, another week. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back. And uh, we're flying, well, solo, can we say? No Lissandra this week. No executive producer, but you know she's going to listen to our content. So we're going to have to be very, very careful with the time we spend, right? As we always are. (laughs) As we always are. And as always, and I'm sure people are so tired of me saying this, I am so looking forward to our guest today because we're talking about a subject matter that I don't think many people realize or understand uh, about rail and the importance of rail and what rail can do on the sustainability front. So we're here now with, with Dev and certainly, John, you've got the first crack at the question. So let's start her up. Yeah, I, I think what would be good is... You're from Rail Vision. So who is Rail Vision? How did it come about? What do you do? Set the scene for us. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, John, David, for having me. So at Rail Vision Analytics, uh, we're essentially building a core product called EcoRail. Um, EcoRail is just like Google Maps for trains. So it sits in the cab of the locomotive on a tablet, like an iPad. But when the user types in their destination, instead of it giving them directions, like turn left, turn right, It's giving them recommendations as to how to physically drive the train in the most efficient way possible. So speeding up, slowing down, specific notch positions, so on and so forth. And that saves a whole lot of fuel. Roughly 15 to 20% of their fuel consumption is saved uh, just by following these recommendations. So Dev, we talked about this earlier. Our company has been involved in the past with an organization called Metrolinx here in Canada. We were involved in developing and setting up teams. And one of the teams was in the locomotive group and you know my recollection it's been a little while that they were looking for ways to do it and i actually think that they were, were you the company that worked on with metrolinx i'm sure you're working with other people but is it was were you the, the firm that was doing that yeah that's 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 really where rail vision sort of uh, got its wings right at the beginning so maybe to backtrack a little bit so my exposure to the rail industry started when I was uh, working at Metrolinx. I was actually just a, a summer co-op student at the time. Worked on a lot of engineering projects related to the locomotives. And one of the opportunities that I really saw was that of there's so much data sitting on their locomotives, but it's not really being harnessed to actually drive some sort of operational improvement. It's, it's mostly data that's being looked at when there's an accident or there's something to review. But in terms of really using that data to, to drive something in the future, I, I didn't notice a whole lot of that. So when I finished my internship, went back to school, 
and sort of came up with the idea of, well, why don't we take this data, demonstrate to Metrolinx how the best drivers are driving and how the average driver is driving, and come up with a set of recommendations as to how to move the train in the most efficient way possible. Um, so we did go forward with that project. And in the first year, I think it saved something like a million liters of fuel, of, of diesel fuel. There was a, a prize by the uh, Railway Association of Canada uh, over this project, but really all to say it was as simple as that, right? We, we took the data that was already sitting on the locomotives, figured out the best way to drive a train. At that time, we printed instructions on a piece of paper that said between this station and this station, go to this speed and coast. We served that to uh, the locomotive engineers and uh, it saved a whole lot of fuel. So if I could pick up on a couple things that you just said. First of all, you were an intern and you came up with this friggin' brilliant idea. So for all our listeners, this is possible. You just have to have the imagination and the, and the skill set. So congratulations, by the way, to you for doing that. That's love to hear that story. A million liters, that is a ton of coin and carbon emission reductions as well. Like that's significant. So I'm sure based on that success, wow, this is, that's quite a story. And a lot of people would want to know and hear about that. So I'm so glad you're, you're here and being able to talk about that. Yeah, Over to you, John. Okay. Interesting what you're saying there. And I, I, I'm, my question is, is, do you, is your work looking at when there's existing operations and then if you like overlaying eco rail, or do you have a role in, if you like, designing new routes, new operations, sort of looking forward and, and sort of projecting what can be done that way? Yeah, good question. We've never been involved in any new operations. And I, I guess when you're talking about new operations, you mean like a new metro system to be built, some yeah. sort of new operation that's about to be built. We, we've just never been involved. We've always looked at existing operations. You know, I think the rail industry does have growth, but sort of the the, you know, in terms of, you know, the entire pie is really the existing operation. Rail's been yeah. around for, for such a long period of time and the technology that's being offered to the rail industry is, is quite limited. So we tend to focus there. I don't think it's to say we couldn't work on a new operation, just I think there's plenty of opportunity in existing operations. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm guessing from what you say, you, you know, we don't see that, you know, when you're looking at a marketplace, the big market must be existing operations. But it would be interesting if somebody was starting a new light railway, metro system, or whatever, if they included this as part of the original. I've got a sneaking suspicion, and it's something Dave and I were talking about. So often in things like this, people think that technology is what's required. Now, you're saying that using existing data and printed cards, and I'm not doing you down here, but doing that... You could save a million liters of fuel. I mean, that's that's not technology in terms of gizmos and whizzy bits and other things. It's it's make maximizing what you've got already, isn't it? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, the most important piece there is the simplicity, right? I mean, now yeah. we've evolved away from just simply printing recommendations on a piece of paper, but we still think a lot about how do we make this as simple as possible for an engineer to understand or as simple as possible for a railroad to implement. I think it's a mistake that, you know, loads of companies make all the time. They they fall in love with the technology that they're building yeah. and they go really, really far with it and kind of remove themselves from the customer's shoes in terms of how they're interpreting that product or, or the usability of it. I think in tech in particular, it's, it's, a, it's a really big problem because 
most railroads, you know, Metrolinx is, is a is a large railroad, like a very large organization, sophisticated organization. Not all railroads look like that. A lot of railroads, especially on the freight side, are quite limited in staff, probably yeah. don't have some sort of tech team on their end or some IT team. Maybe it's, it's an out, outsourced team. So they don't have a lot of focus internally on, on technologies. And for that reason, people aren't used to uh, integrating with all of these technologies. So I think in tech, it's it's a huge problem where and especially in kind of these antiquated industries where a tech company comes with some product that they've fallen in love with that just seems incredibly elaborate and has whatever, you know, Google integrations, Apple integrations, you name it, integrations. The reality is when you sort of bring it to the railroad or bring it to whatever customer that, that doesn't operate in that kind of space, it actually is very confusing or very hard to use yeah. because the, the simple piece that they were looking for is, is underneath, you know, four layers of complexity. Yeah, yeah Deb, I, I want to reinforce this. Oh, sorry, John, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead and then I'll come back in. Okay. I want to reinforce this, Deb, because this is, John and I uh, talk about this all the time, and that is you really need people. Uh, it, t relying on technology on its own, you really need people to ensure they're using the technology properly. And I, it seems to me what you've designed and what you're using, that that's effectively what you've done is you're, you're reliant on people to ensure that it, things are followed correctly. Or are you going down the line where people aren't as involved as, as much going forward? No, we definitely, we definitely take the path of needing uh, the buy-in from the user. Um, yeah. So maybe one distinction I'll make, and, and um, then this, this kind of goes back to the, the business side of, of selling a product uh, like ours, is um, the user and the customer are different, right? Um, ultimately, the person who has to use the product and the person who's going to pay for the product are two different people. Yes. Um, in in um, you know in like what we call a B two C company, um, so business to consumer, usually it's the same person, right? The person who's paying for the product is the person that's using yeah. the product as well. So it also creates different dynamics because obviously this sounds like a great idea to management, right? Uh, management thinks, oh, wow, we're just going to save a whole bunch of money. You know, we're going to uh, make this look amazing because of all the emission reductions. But at the end of the day, it's not the management that has to use this product, right? So that that sort of line between making sure that there's buy-in from the user and making sure that it's a product that the users love as well is really, really important to us. Otherwise, the project's a failure. It just, it just never really gets off the ground. So yeah, we very much so take the route of trying to make sure that it's something that locomotive engineers love, in addition to returning the benefits such that it's it's a product that management approves uh, to have at the rail. Okay. Okay. I, I got two observations, and you were talking about keeping it simple. Uh, this is probably not really relevant, but I've had a, a steam locomotive driving experience, which... Yeah actually shows you just how simple uh, a locomotive well a steam locomotive even now you want more you want more steam you've got to shovel more coal in but basically you've got stop and go yeah. and it's a matter of how you w work those out and i'm guessing from what i know that with, with modern locomotives it is a relatively simple there, there may be complicated inf interfaces but what you're asking the driver to do are simple actions so you want something that's simple question i wanted to ask you though you you've gone from sort of instruction cards to a tablet is the tablet connected to the, the data systems on the locomotive or or what could you tell us a little bit about that yeah sure so it's not connected to the locomotive um itself right electrically 
right? Like it's connected through a, a bracket, right? Physically, it's it's sitting in the locomotive, um, yeah. but it's not connected electrically. So, which kind of creates an interesting problem, right? If you tell someone go into notch three, you don't actually know if they went into notch three or not, because you don't actually have that reading off of the locomotive directly okay. to the tablet to know if they went into notch three. So, so no, it's not connected. So essentially the way that it works is we have these models set up and we learn from all of the data coming off of the locomotives, how to drive the train in the most efficient way possible. But then that's translated to the tablet in order to run that model. If we say notch three, we don't know if they went into notch three until after the trip. The only thing we really know during the trip is the speed. That's really the only signal we yeah. can get off of the tablet, which is, yeah, we know where the tablet is from GPS. Uh, that translates into a speed. So we know when there's discrepancies between what we think should be happening on the train versus what we're telling or what yeah. we're recommending to happen on the train, we can sort of observe those major discrepancies. And those discrepancies may be for, for, for other reasons as well, not necessarily someone didn't follow a recommendation. It could be we set a recommendation or we didn't set a recommendation and the train comes to a stop. Unrelated whatsoever to a normal operation, yeah. just whatever, there was a signal change, train had to come to a stop. So we can observe those big discrepancies as to what we think should be happening versus what's actually happening, but on the granular level of knowing specifically what notch position someone was in or specifically what brake pipe pressure they had when applying the brakes. Those are things that we can't know in real time. We only know it after the fact. That makes it interesting, doesn't it? Because at one level, you know, with the, you know, the obsession with technology, we want it fully connected and, and getting real time data. But then I was just thinking yeah. the flip side of this is you can put it in any locomotive. It doesn't matter about the exactly. interface between the locomotive system and, and your tablet. You could and you could transfer it from locomotive. You know, if you like, the implementation of your system is very straightforward. I would assume because of that. Definitely, I'll I'll uh, I'll plug our product a little bit and the, and the advantages oh, of it there. Um, <laughs> but it's exactly that that point, right? Um, it's the implementation. Um, it's as simple as put a bracket in the cab of the locomotive, or some locomotives already have a bracket to hold the tablet, um, download the app, and place the iPad in the bracket. That's it. Other systems that require connections into all of the hardware of the locomotive, for the most part, you have to take the locomotive out of service. Yeah. So that makes it significantly more complicated because now, you know, yes, you get better data resolution, and, you know, there's a few other advantages of, of uh, you know, plugging your system directly into all of the electronics of the locomotive. But it's it's essentially like, you know, it's, now you're doing labor on the locomotive, right? You have to take it into the shop. You have to do a lot of work. You have to take that locomotive out of service. That locomotive needs to be around for you to take it out of service, right? It needs to be in the yard, needs to be, you know, yeah. some location. So So there's a lot of business planning in order to set up that technology. And then the other thing, John, you kind of mentioned is the aspect of you can take a tablet from locomotive to locomotive, right? If you have a device that's hardwired into the locomotive, it only belongs to that locomotive, right? So if you yeah. have 20 locomotives in your fleet, in order to get 100% fuel savings, you need 20 devices. If you only have it on an iPad, you need essentially just as many devices as you have crews using all of those fleets. And even that, you, oh, can, yeah. you can share devices between crews, yeah. right? So it's 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 more of a, a, a system where once it's set up, it's set up. You can use the tablet between any locomotive. And if you have multiple crews with multiple tablets, any one of them can go into the locomotive, set their iPad in the bracket, and use the app the same way. So it's really neat in that regard because it, it kind of... Um, 
breaks a, a business model that's really common in the rail industry, which is you're buying a device for a locomotive. Um, this is your, your, your paying, well, it, it's SaaS, right? Software as a service. Yeah. You're paying for software for an entire region or for, for a, a service that uh, transcends into multiple locomotives, multiple crews, so on and so forth. So um, it seems obvious, like, I mean, you know, we have so many, whatever, we have Netflix, we have so many services that are like this, but you know, in, in industries that uh, are a little bit more antiquated, it's not as obvious, right? They, they follow very no. classic methodologies. No, I guess, I guess you have got the, adopt, the adoption process. And I was thinking, and I'm not going to put you on the spot unless you want to be on the spot, but I'm wondering, you, you know, somebody who's, who's, shall we say, offering a product that's all wired in and gaining every bit of data, it would be interesting to see how much more, if any, savings they get over your should we say crew-based solution as opposed to the locomotive-based solution yep oh definitely and we've done these tests on our end like against yep. competitive products so so i know i know the answer is that ours outperforms but Good. i wouldn't attribute it like to kind of yeah exactly but i wouldn't attribute it necessarily to the connection versus the non-connection right right um, i would attribute that more to the logic that's actually running the, the fuel savings but all all to say that yeah, it's possible in, in both scenarios, whether you have the connection or whether you don't, to save a lot of fuel. In fact, I would honestly say if you if we had the connection, we probably still could get single digit percentages of fuel savings more out. We probably could. Yes. But then comes that trade off on the business side, on the customer side, which is but then it removes all of our value proposition of you can take the tablet from locomotive to locomotive yeah. and it's simple to install. You don't need to take locomotives out of service. It, I, I think I think Dave was touching on it. I think there is an object lesson there for people that you can get too sucked into a full technology solution. And, and in fact, what you're looking at is very often the human interface element. And what you do with that could probably deliver 80% of what you could get. But then, you know, it's, it's what does it cost to get that further 20%? Yeah. Thank you. Well, and to kind of say something about just the general 80-20 rule as well, yeah. one statement I, I used to say a lot, especially in that project with Metrolinks, but um, still I, I say often enough is that probably 80% of your savings just come from the majority of your drivers driving like yeah. your best driver. Forget your best driver even driving in a some exceptional unicorn style of driving. The majority of the savings just come from most people driving like your best driver. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that applies to an awful lot of things where there's operator control, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Dev, my question to you, based on your platform, do you report? How often do you report the net benefits that are achieved to the management group with your application? Do you report weekly, monthly? Do you report based on crews? How do you do re reporting, demonstrating the value you bring? Yeah, so we have we have a portal that sort of pairs with our product. So on that portal, you can select whatever time period you want. So if you want the data from the last day, you can just see the last day's worth of data. You can see a week, you can see four days, 17 days, you name it. You can sort of select that. We have one automated service, which is just on a weekly basis. We just uh, email a report. So yeah, daily at the minimum, weekly on schedule, but anything in between or over, anyone could select what, what period they want to see. It's great because our experience is that that's the issue is that a lot of times people aren't aware that energy is controllable 
But when you report back to them that it is, it reinforces that continued sustainability philosophy behind it. So that's definitely. Yeah. And I think in a lot of organizations too, especially in railroads and, and smaller railroads that we work with, um, there's not always dedicated personnel to our project. And in fact, very rarely is there dedicated personnel to our project. And I, I think I think in 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 many companies, you know, small or large organizations, you know, purchasing any uh, software, there's usually not someone dedicated to the project. Um, so the reality is, the people that we are working with on that project also have eight other things to do that day. You know maybe we're not their number one priority. And so I think it's very important to always just have reminders, checkpoints, uh, automated emails, even though there's, you know, a better way to do this, they could log into the portal themselves. The reality is they have other things to do as well. So really good point. Really good point. We always take it as like, oh, the customer doesn't like our product. We just see it as they they just have other stuff to do as well. (laughs) Let's just push them using it. Yes. We're all leaner now, aren't we? That's less than we have more things to do. And and uh, the other thing I would like to ask you is what is the range of savings that you're finding? And I suspect it's going to be different yep. for different organizations, but if you could just give us a range of the type of fuel savings that you're finding with the various customers you have. Yeah, I would say between, so the, the broader range would be between, I'll say five on the low end to 20 on the higher end. On average, right, in in one run, you know, we'll see, you know, we can see 50% savings, but that's that's not going to happen over and over and over again, right? You're going to have 50 one time, and then you're going to have two the next time, and so on and so forth. So on average, we see roughly 5 to 20%. And kind of what changes that 5 to 20% is the operation or, or, or the type of operation that it is. Um, on the higher end, we see uh, commuter rail, passenger rail. It's a lot of stop and go. And drivers intuitively drive these these metro systems, commuter trains or passenger trains, a little bit more pedal to the metal, step on the gas, slam on the brakes. In freight, you don't see that driving style as much in general, but there still is a little bit of it, or there's still, you know, energy mismanagement. So yeah, then as you step down, you get more into the the freight side. If you have longer distances, mainline traffic, you, you still see a lot of savings. And on the lowest end of savings, you'd be in like a switching operation. If you're just switching around cars, there's still savings, but we're talking more in the magnitude of, of 5%. It's still really compelling. Like I, I know the cost of uh, diesel fuel per liter. And then there's probably even uh, maintenance benefits associated with this because of how you're running the, the locomotive as well. Have, have you been able to capitalize on that? So good point. I think everyone we chat with recognizes the maintenance benefits. We just have a really tough time quantifying it. (laughs) It's just a very tough data challenge to go from, you know, X person spent two seconds less on the brakes, therefore someone saving Y dollars in in brake pads. Like it's a very tough problem to to quantify perfectly, but I don't think we ever uh, face any resistance in terms of people just believing that there's some maintenance gain on this as well. I'll share last point on that. I'll share with you that we had a, a gentleman that has done a lot of work in manufacturing, and he actually found energy savings were significant, but there was more savings and maintenance when he tracked it. So it would be mm. really interesting to see in the locomotive side if that's the case as well. It, it probably is true. Um, the reason we focus a lot on fuel is because I, the result is more immediate. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. The tough part about maintenance, and there's a lot of companies um, that focus on predictive maintenance or something in in the maintenance space. I think there's there's definitely merit to what they're doing. Definitely, there, there's a lot of opportunity to save on maintenance costs. Um, I think that the really tough challenge there is it's a tough business to sort of prove. 
I mean, even if I'll, I'll kind of go to an extreme example, but if a business's value is something to the effect of we're going to prevent some accident that costs so much money, or we're going to prevent some failure that costs so much money, and that's why you need our software today. The really tough part about that business is you kind of need to wait for it to happen or not happen yes. um, to really prove your point. And that yes. could be yeah. years down the line. So what do you yes. do in all the years up to that? It's a little bit tough uh, of a business model, I think, to run, and which is probably the reason why we stay away from the maintenance side, especially as an early stage startup where, where we need to you know, kind of be sprinting as fast as possible right, right from day one. It's a tough business model to run. Fair enough. John, I'm going to hand it over to you. It's interesting, and I, I do work in some other transport sectors, and I think my, well, my question's a simple one. Could the model that you're, being, you're using for locomotives, could that be used in other sectors? It could be, but there's different sectors have different competition, right? Um, yeah. I think a few years ago, I used to naively say, for sure, we could do this anywhere. And then I realized, actually, people do do it everywhere. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of pe uh, players in different spaces, right? Uh, I mean, in trucking, for example, there's, there's, I think, a handful of off-the-shelf type products for what they would just call eco-driving, right? Or, yeah, I, I telematics and a variety of things available there. Yeah. Yes, there are. So that's it. So there's definitely points to transition what we're doing elsewhere. I think um, we just really understand rail very well. Um, yes. And it's uh, a niche that we really like. I, I personally love this industry a lot um, in terms of the opportunity, but as as well as just the general value of the industry. I, I just personally love industries that I feel are just totally untapped in terms of they have so much opportunity, but most of the world's kind of asleep at the wheel, right? People just don't realize how much opportunity there is, mostly out of they just don't understand the industry. And, and in the rail industry, we, we sort of call this the Amazon effect. People go online, they book something, uh, sorry, they purchase something online, shows up at their doorstep. Everything between clicking a button and it coming to their doorstep, they have absolutely no clue how that happened. They just take it yep. for granted, right? Um, so rail is very much so like that. It's, it's an industry that people don't think about at all. And, but I, I just believe there's, there's so much opportunity to do what we're doing specifically in rail before we're thinking about other transportation industries. Makes sense. Now, yeah. What is the biggest takeaway for our listeners uh, based on what we've discussed so far? Good question. <laughs> I think there's a few points. I would say on the business side, there's opportunity just about everywhere. It's really important that you have a true passion in what you're building and in the industry that you're working in. I think that trumps all because business is not easy. It's a whole lot more difficult when you don't really enjoy it. So I would say that's maybe a big piece for anyone who, who has their own uh, business or is thinking about starting their own business. I would say on the rail side, I, I think the biggest piece is just how much opportunity there is in this industry. We talk a lot about electrification. We talk about a lot about sort of global trends, but the rail industry or rather moving goods by trains is four times more efficient than moving goods by truck. So yes, we can talk about all sorts of technological advancements in the rail industry, but the reality is if we moved more goods by train or if we moved more passengers by train, that's actually, I think, one of the biggest changes in terms of driving sustainable transportation. If we were able to do that, I think we would be taking a way larger bite out of the general problem of, of reducing emissions uh, from transportation than many of the, the popular options that are out there today. It's a really good point, and it's good segue for John being in Europe. 
our belief here in North America, at least mine, is the Europeans have this right uh, on the uh, locomotive transportation versus, you know, what, what we currently have in North America. Yep. John, what, what do you think would be your biggest takeaway, what, if, what we've heard from Deb? I, I think my biggest takeaway, and it's a bit of confirmation, if you like, and that is what, what Dev's saying is, you know, a workable solution that's not the highest technology is probably a really good way to go. Not it, it, it's, it's one of those things, not looking for perfect it's funny, you, you talked about Amazon. I think it, when Amazon are doing product development, they have a thing they call the, I think it's the minimum viable product. You know, what is it that will work? Get it out into the marketplace and then see where it goes rather than spending all your effort getting perfection. And I, I think we see a lot of people get seduced, particularly those that, and I think we'll talk about this in our second podcast, but those that get into data suddenly just handling the data becomes everything but doing something yep. with that as a result of that data becomes secondary and i think what you're talking about is you're actually using what you've got and you're giving very clear instructions to somebody do this don't do this it will save and i i think that's that's a big takeaway yeah well stated john mine is effectively devs reinforcing again that you really need people to coincide with technology and you can't rely on technology to solve the problem. And the amount of savings that you've described for dollars, GHGs, just by relying on people and getting them involved in using best practices is significant. So I'm really looking forward to our second piece with you, Dev, but thank you so much for this. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks, Dev. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts. See you next week.